0: My mom has saved us, but she also lost us. It was so much has happened back home where um, my brothers were married, I was not there. My sister got married, I was not there. I got married, my family was not here. Um, and uh, my one of my little sister passed away, my grandma passed away, who was very beloved to me. And you know, this occasion, this thing that happened once in a lifetime, and I wanted to be part of it. So being a refugee is a huge sacrifice. And if I have a choice, I want to be anywhere, I want to be with my loved one. That's what I want to give. You don't become a refugee out of choice. It's not
1: something like a point in the order. So hello and welcome to the Still Me Rise podcast series. I'm your host Nathan. I'm really delighted that the Herbert Art Gallery could host us for episode 11 of the podcast. So, this podcast was started last year, during um, the 2020 Coventry Wilkins Festival, to tell the stories of people who come to Britain to come and seek protection. Uh, What was important was to hear in their own words, about the journeys that they travel, uh, the difficulties that they face, and their experiences of of life in Britain. So I'm delighted today that we can welcome Gulwali Parsele, who's the author of The Lightless Sky, So with Coventry Walkins Festival, if you're following us on social media, uh, the hashtag is Coventry Walkins 2021, and you can also follow the city of Coventry website, as well as follow Coventry 2021. So, Gomali, your life is surreal. It's quite extraordinary the journey that you you've, you've travelled. You're born in 1994. In Afghanistan, just when the Taliban came to power, talk to us about your your early childhood and what that was like.
0: Thank you, Nathan. It's good to be here um, after a long time because because of the pandemic we didn't get it in our home. So my childhood was quite interesting growing up uh, in eastern Afghanistan, where my father was a doctor. My family was um, business. My uncles were businessmen and we were a very, a very busy household, but I spent most of my time living in the mountains with my grandparents yeah. uh, as a shopper. Uh, we had a very nomadic life and I loved it. From age three, four, I went with them. I did not spend much time with my siblings or parents. Uh, so, yeah, for about three, four years we were in the mountains mostly, with mm-hmm. sheep and goats. And uh, I've learned a great deal from, from my grandparents. Uh, yeah, those are, those are, that was the only kind of positive experience of my childhood because when we came back to our family home uh, when I was about seven, sadly the war began. So the US did invasion in 2001. Mm-hmm. And since then, um, we constantly fear for our lives. And we used to go and hide in bunkers uh, from rocket attacks and bombardments. And unfortunately, in the last 20 years, things has not improved, things have deteriorated. Uh, right now, uh, every year we lose about 10,000 civilians. And in the last 20 years, we had about 150,000 people died in Afghanistan, so it's, it's happening, it's tragic, um, but yeah, my childhood was was, was good in the, these early years of being in the mountains, mm-hmm. uh, but then when we came back home, we lived in constant fear of uh, being killed, we lived in the war zone, my home and my country was a war zone, and unfortunately it's sad and still is.
1: Yeah, for, for the majority of our audience, the, the picture that they have of the Taliban is that these are very, very bad people. In your in your book. Uh, just so we can get some context about this. Um, part of your family, you say your uncle, who was one of the Taliban leaders. Talk to us about what the Taliban are and what purposes they served as when they governed.
0: Sure, I think things are very different to what it was then and what it is now. The Taliban are quite barbaric in their uh, governance, but at the time because we had to put this into perspective. When the Taliban came to power, there was a civil war beforehand, where millions of Afghans lost their lives after the, US, after the Soviet Union invasion was over eight years, where again millions of Afghans were killed by the Russian forces. And so, after the Russian conflict, there was a. my father was part of the the Freedom Fighters. He was a doctor, but as well, being the Freedom fighting. And there was a huge uh, fighting among these warlords in the moment, his power. Uh, and for, for a number of years, when the Taliban came, they put an end to it. They were a kind type of basically students of Islamic studies from Manchester their schools, Islamic schools from across the country. and uh, in the beginning they were welcome because they were able to bring stability and security, even though it was done with the highd state. And according to my grandfather and my father, who was actually refugees in Peshawar, so I'm a third generation refugee in, in, in some sense,
2: They used to say we were
0: willing to give our security, we were willing to give our freedom in return to security. Uh, the child that, but now looking at the situation, now things are very different. Yes, they're going for about five, six years, um, uh, a lot of bad things, but at the same time, they were able to bring some sort of uh, you know, justices, justice and and, um, and security, but at the same time, there was lack of development, women's rights, and human rights were generally non existent. Yeah, uh, if you could stay quiet, you, know, you would find that we spoke out the things that I'm able to say now. If I, if I have said these things in Afghanistan, I would be. I would be in a serious trouble. So, but things are changing now in terms of uh, we have now a government, we have a system as important as, as it is. I don't think Afghanistan wants to go back to uh, the 90s. Yeah. Um, though Miami was part of the Taliban, the reason the Taliban were able to be successful in some ways was they were not very democratic, but they had people from almost every family in their ranks. Yeah. And that's how they were able to not give people um, not have an uprising, and not have you know, protests against them. Because they had people from, from his, his, his family. So, yeah, I hope uh, right now we live in a very sensitive terms. I hope they don't come back. Right. I don't, um, you know, I'm from a Pashtun family the Taliban, I don't want them. My friend, my family don't want them. But uh, things are seen to be, we're heading in a very dangerous direction. Because the U.S. is pulling back. I mean, I'm glad they, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. Yeah. But things are very, very bad right now. Right, okay.
1: Let's, let's talk about the events that, that lead to you leaving your country. Um, it's the year 2001. You're seven years old. And 9-11 happens in the United States, where the twin towers on um, seven planes crash into those, into those towers in this, this terrorist event. Um, the Taliban are accused of harboring the song of Bin Laden. This causes the invasion, which changes your life completely. What would, can you recount? Would you remember of those events?
0: Um, we didn't have TVs and things, but we heard things on the radio that this has happened. Um, my family, we did not expect the U.S. would actually bomb Afghanistan. There would come there was threats of war, but we didn't expect the uh, uh, imminence of war, and actually it happened. Early, in NW end of 2001, around October. I don't remember much, uh, other than there was, there was chaos, there was like, you know, fighters being, um, there was a very tense atmosphere. We used to have lots of people staying at our house, fighters. And then, once the government, the Taliban government was collapsed, the regime was gone, the challenges then began, for my family, people who had, you know, relatives in the Taliban. Things became things went from bad to worse. But what I remember, I visited the States in 2016 when the leggings they were published there, and I went to the printout place in, in Manhattan. It felt really strange how somebody done this, you know, this terrible crime in the name of my religion, mm-hmm. supposedly for my country. It was a very uneasy and strange feeling that 3,000 innocent life were lost for some ideological and crazy ideas. But at the same time, I was thinking how because of that act. And that actions of a few people who are not acting actually, my 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 entire lives has changed. You know, I've lost loved ones because of that war. And there's been thousands of deaths across Afghanistan, Iraq, and elsewhere in the world. And I was just thinking, how it, you don't know, if the response from Bush, and from the U.S. government was different to what it has been, maybe it would have different in a different, different world. Because right now, the U.S. is to back with the Taliban. and have made a peace deal with them. Yeah. Why couldn't they have done it? Then, or maybe 2003 or 2002, when there was a lot of possibilities. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it was a strange feeling within the States, which uh, I always saw America as the enemy, the enemy mm-hmm. country. And I realized I had no issue with the people uh, or the country mm-hmm. as such. I do still have a problem with foreign policy and its kind of politics yeah, uh, yes. and its war and terror, But ultimately, I felt really um, sad to see the, the destruction mm-hmm. that was caused some you know, fundamentalist crazy people and that, that I'm my religion and I was kind of sick to think that the people were using my religion and my kind of country yeah. for this kind of destruction.
1: Yeah no, our audience will be will be familiar with the events that are happening in this country now where this country is changing its asylum policy mm-hmm. and it has a home secretary who talks about people we trafficked and she talks about how she wants to wash those criminal gangs and smugglers. You're one of those people, good boy, you left when you were 11 years old and crossed eight countries. Um, talk to us about your mother asking you and your brother to leave the country and to go to, to Peshawar, to Pakistan, to go and stay with your uncle and the events that lead up to you
0: crossing eight countries and then eventually arriving in Britain. We were only talking about how I used to live in Boston for like 10 years and I moved to Kettering recently. It was a very difficult decision to actually move from Boston to Kettering. Uh, imagine you know, living in your homes, in your family, your loved ones, and everything that you know. So it was not a, an easy decision for my mother, particularly for my family and grandmother who decided to send us away. I wasn't very keen on it, you know, I was only 12 at the time. Yeah. Uh, my uncles were arrested, we had, you know, family members were dead by their spouses, we were in a really uh, difficult situation and circumstances and I thought even though we were young, we still were the men of the house and we needed to be there. I feel guilty well now uh, that that we were sent away. I've never really listened to my mom. And I listened to her for once and she sent me so far away. <laughs> literally had to travel 12,000 uh, miles. But I understood the, the, the complexity and the implication of the situation. Uh, but I didn't know to the extent of what is going to happen in this journey. We were told by its we would be in Europe, within, you know, with no time for few weeks and months, but it took over a year. But you were a child. Yes, yeah, you were sure. a child. But I wasn't really child.
1: What was this journey like? Who was assisting you along? So, so. I was
0: uh, I, when we were writing the book. Uh, my, my writing team who helped me write this book, and she said to Bhuvan, well, "You were a child. You cried." I said, "No, I didn't cry. I was an Afghan child. I, uh, I don't know. I was quite a mature child uh, because I had to be in oh, yeah. Afghanistan. You grew up before." Your time. I became an adult before my time, and, and this journey has also made me age. that's why I had issues with, with social services when I got here they did not believe I was 13 and I stopped off all because I you know, grew up in a very winterish, a harsh environment as well as seeing wars and conflicts and seeing things that we can't even imagine uh, but yes, the, the, the smugglers assisted me I was supposed to be with my brother but we were separated by the smugglers um, I had hope and faith that I'd find my brother and my mom told us, no matter how bad it gets, don't come back um, and also she said hold out each other's hands. But mm-hmm. then my father was suffering, so I was very upset about that. Um, and I was keep looking for him everywhere I went. So the journey was you know, a hellish journey. It took me a year, I went through almost ten countries, I was arrested in every every country, almost uh, deported in prison as a child. I forget being treated as a child, there were occasions I wasn't even treated as in a human. And the sad reality is that what has happened to me is not history, it's happening to me right now as we speak. And in the home sector, our know, government policies are contributing to these people taking these dangerous routes because we don't have legally safe routes to come here. You know, I wish there were a way where we could have gone to British embassy or some other embassy to where we could have paid for a humanitarian visa or some sort of resettlement. That's not available. Uh, there are very, very few uh, rules, uh, routes for people to come here. Uh, one of the most successful um, safe routes we have in the UK is the family reunification route. So if you are accepted as a refugee, you can bring your spouse and children. Now the government wants to restrict that as well. It's already restricted, but it's quite a, quite a, a good route. About 30,000 people came in, in the last five years through the family reunification rule. You can't bring certain like you can't bring your parents, uh, if you're an unaccompanied minor, you can't bring your older children, but you can bring your younger children, your spouse. Which is, which is quite good, but the government wants to make it almost impossible with this new immigration plan. They want to, um, don't want to give people refugee status, they take away the certainty, the, 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 they could plan their future. So they want, they want people to be in constant limbo, constant uh, uncertainty mm. and delays. So they want to give people, instead of giving you five years, they'll give you two and a half years, and you have to pay for it, you could be uh, detained at any time, your status could be taken away, you could be deported. So, they want, to, want you to deal with a threat yeah. instead of you know, integrating and becoming part of society and contributing. Know. Like, for example, if you're a refugee, you can go to university, if if you get a degree, and so on and so forth. But if you don't have a refugee status, then you can't do a lot of the things that I was able to do. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's very concerning and worrying how it's moving very in the wrong direction, was the very right-wing um, mm-hmm. direction of what you okay,
1: So we, here. Our audience would, would love to get some insight and to learn about, for example, what were you imprisoned for? Because you're, you're separated from your brother quite early on. When you leave Pakistan, and you, you travel to Iran. What were the issues? Because you were given documents by these smugglers. This is the first time you say that you saw a passport. Mm-hmm. And your um, your picture on that passport. What were you being imprisoned for? Your,
0: on your journeys. So, basically, when we, I mean, the story is in the book and it's long. So, when we cross Iran, uh, I had passed, the smugglers taken away from me um, at one point. And so, we were always um, fearing the authorities so we had to be very careful. Uh, and then, when we get to Turkey, I was the first time I was arrested, I was in Bulgaria, when we had jumped from a moving train. Dangerous and risky, but the smugglers managed to do that. Uh, we got arrested, and I was hoping we would be treated with some sort of dignity, and respect, because so the European countries supposedly they respected people's human rights, but I didn't mean they didn't, didn't care about refugees. And so we were really, really badly by the authorities there. The smuggler treated us as a commodity, the authorities were very cruel and humane to us. So we spent a week in prison in Bulgaria, a very confined space, uh, didn't give us much food, it was cold, and then they deported us back to Turkey. Sometime later, I got arrested in Istanbul. I didn't commit any crime, my crime was just seeking protection and safety. Uh, so in Turkey I spent two two years in a prison uh, two months, sorry, two weeks in Istanbul uh, in a prison which was full of criminals. I don't know, drug dealers who I think they were so, Were you in prison with, with adults? Yeah, the whole yeah. Um, no. I, I I I remember I complained that somebody told me there's a children prison downstairs in this block in Istanbul and I complained and then they said, Well, you know we were with a group. I was with the group where they arrested us. So usually I would be the enemies in the group. At the only time I remember, there was the one young boy who was in Greece, when we were in prison in Greece. So yeah, I was struggling. It was very difficult. I literally just in the doorway. There was more no space in the prison. Um, the, 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 the toilet didn't have doors. So it was quite humiliating. And then they reported us all the way back to Iran. So the, the reason it took me a year was back and forth. It was like snakes in ladders. The journey was not straightforward. And again, as I said, um, my only crime was seeking protection and safety. And you hear this in the UK why do people come here? Why don't they stay in the first safe country they go to? Mm-hmm. These safe countries are not safe. I mean, Iran, I was very fearful. And again, they fixed me terribly Turkey when I was in prison in Turkey, in Bulgaria. Greece, the prison was better than these previous three countries, but it was still prison. You know, our freedom was taken away. Yeah. And I went back to Greece 11 years later and I found the place. It was not actually a prison, it was a police uh, station, but they had a prison upstairs, like custody or something like a detention place we were there for about 13 days two weeks they give us food we were able to take a shower uh, much better than you know the, the other three countries and we were able to see a doctor and a nurse who actually helped us to get us out of the prison because we were and actually we were in a children's prison place. they put us in a children's prison uh, there was 11 of us who were under the or under 16s kind of remember but we were young and um, they were nice to us but still we were locked
1: up Right. okay so 11 months in into this journey, you then arrive, you move from Greece and you arrive in Italy. Um, this is the first time that you come across some social services where they're t- treating you as a child, but you run away.
0: Talk to us about why. Why, why did you run away when you found safety? Great. So, after like, you know, crossing the Mediterranean, which was very dangerous, I've never seen the sea before, I was frightened, I was scared, and I saw so death that many occasions, but in the Mediterranean, I was. Certain people were die, or what was about to cup capsized, and could have drowned. In the, in the last five years, there's been you know, 25,000 or so people um, dying. It's uh, just heartbreaking, it's terrible how, you know, how the situation has been. Um, so, anyway, after making the reason, finding out that my brother was sent to Britain from smuggling. Mm. This was about nine months of my journey. I've heard uh, that my brother was sent to the UK, and I had to somehow get here. I didn't know how. Right. So, the smuggler was trying to help me put me on top of a lorry engine, which is really small and uh, really hot. Medically, thankfully, because there were people there for months in this place, place called Patra in Greece. Uh, and I saw Greece and army actually beating people with sticks, and again, I was really shocked uh, to see this in Europe, to see this in Greece. Human beings, people who have lived conflicts, wars, and persecution, and injustices were treated in such a way, and yeah. actually still happening, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the same Greece school got who saved me and now purposely drowning people, pushing boats into danger. And, um, yeah, it's beyond me, I, I can't understand it. Anyways. When I was in Italy, this was the first time uh, I was without smugglers, without my travel companion, without my friends, because previously I always had friends and people who took care of me and supported me. Um, the friends were very nice to me in Italy. They took me to a care home. I was there for about two weeks, they gave me food, clothes, and I was looked after. They were very ty- kind and compassionate. And it felt really unusual to be not running for my life, not you know, worrying about food, and shelter, the basic necessity of life. And uh, so, I didn't think this was normal, you know, I, until then, i was been running for my life you know, for many, many years. And I ran away because they couldn't understand my situation, but I needed to get to England somehow, yes. to find my brother. Um, the people lives. like, oh, I never thought, you know, I'd write a book and other languages, including Italian. If it wasn't my brother, I was speaking Italian now, that was the only place which welcomed me, treated me as a, as a kid as a human being, and uh, the people there were very, very nice. I forgot the town's name, or was somewhere near, a small place near Bari in Southern Italy. I ran away from that place, I took a train to Rome, four-five hours five, train five, journey. I arrived in Rome, saw people sleeping in carton boxes, people sleeping in the parks. I was kind of been because the place I was in was safe. Because I had a room able to take a shower, and the people were very, very nice to me. Um, I love to go back to practice people. I thank them for their you know, care, compassion, and concern for me. Because they were, you know, I saw a lot of kindness in humanity, the journey, a lot of cruelty in humanity. So the, the Italian example was a, a very positive example of this, this experience. Okay, okay. so you, you managed to
1: cross over uh, into France, and then you you go to Paris, and then end up in Calais. Um, our listeners will know about what the so-called jungle. Talk to us about your time in the jungle and what that was like. I, I mean, I regret that I have to repeat this term, the jungle, but this is what people are familiar with. Um, the idea that the jungle, yes. all, we won't call it a jungle but whilst people live there. Because um, mm-hmm. I find that really, really shocking. But granted, that is the case. What, what was that
0: experience? You like? Sure, I said in the book, the place you. The name was given because we were, we were living there, it was, it, was, it was because of us and we were treated in such a way that you wouldn't even would treat animals like that. So after going through this you know, terrible ordeal this journey, experiences for over 11 months or so, I arrived in Kali. I was born. This place was terrible. There mm-hmm. a lot of people at the um, I, I did not, I was not prepared for things that I saw, the experiences I had for a month. Until we wrote the book, I thought I was there for three months. That's how bad the conditions were. We used to get arrested every day by the police for no reason. I used to run out the lorries every night. I was tired, exhausted. The police would just, it was kind of, you know, they would harass us, humiliate us. Um, And actually now, maybe, I don't know then, but now with British taxpayer money basically, we pay the French police to uh, to prevent the refugees from cheating, to make it available for them to stay in in the so called jungle. So I had, I had a really bad experience, I could see when I could see it over, I was so close, yet I was so far. And um, the authorities were supposed to care for us, but you know, they were making our land help. hell. And I just don't wish that place on anyone, and I don't want... I think it's a shame for Britain and France and Europe that this place exists. In 2015 we had the kind of informal camp, which was somewhat better, and, uh, but now you know, there's still about 2,000 people stranded in Thailand, uh, Um I just feel... So that place should not exist and people should not be living in such conditions. And every time I travel there, uh, I've been there many, many times since I've been able to travel. The only reason people are there is because they don't have the piece of paper that I have, the passport that we take for granted. They are equally deserving of security, peace, justice and and fairness. They have fled their countries and their loved ones. And I saw kids when I was there, but 15, 14, 16, three times I went I saw kids as young as me, those kids, 10, 8, their own, easily could be exploited, treated, you know, badly. So the government was supposed to take 3,000 people under the Doves Amendment and ended up only taking 400 or so. And maybe 200. I think instead of us leading in this humanitarian crisis, we are washing up our hands of responsibility. We are doing everything we can to make it difficult for people. We spent 30 million on defenses and walls at Calais and security. Instead of you know, making people's lives better, there's only a few thousand people. It's a very small percentage of people who want to come here, either for family reunification reasons or reasons they see Britain as a place of fairness, justice. But in actual fact, that's not completely true. But Britain has a reputation that it is a, uh, you know. So a lot of people do stay in France, people do stay in other countries. Uh, last year, France had 150k asylum applications, Germany had 170k, or actually the year before, before COVID. And Britain only had like about 35,000, we still complain, you know. Sweden, Spain, Italy, Greece—all these uh, many European countries had more asylum applications in refugees than we do. Less than one percent of our national refugees, and it seems the government seems to be, you know, creating a crisis that doesn't exist. Uh, th- we had about uh, this year. We had about five thousand people living across the channel in these small boats, which is, which at the time I never imagined I would see one day, because this is a very dangerous route. It's one of the busiest shipping lines in the world. It's a very dangerous water. I didn't think that the experience I had in the Mediterranean, the agency, would be repeated across the English Channel. That's what's happening because of our policies and our hostility. The smugglers have been empowered because of our immigration system. If, if people are able to come here through safer and legal routes, through uh, other means, and you know, the British government, the homelands will actually give people letters of humanitarian visas and get them to come here trains and planes and buses and very easily and safely. The smugglers, the smugglers will be out of business. The multi-billion pound industry, the criminal activity that's happening is because, because of our system, because of the way things are done here. Okay. So eventually you, you manage to get on the truck
1: and you arrive here. So give us an insight into what Britain's asylum system is like. What happens? You That's a big question. You <laughs> so you you arrive and then
0: and then what so, happens? So after about 100 attempts and all sorts of trucks and lorries and trains, I uh, put myself into great danger. I managed to get across, I once boiled my face with chemicals in my truck. I got across in the back of a refrigerated truck, um, which is very similar to the one we saw 39 people losing their lives in, 39 Vietnamese people uh, a few years ago. Thankfully, the trailer dropped down the freezer, uh, so we were able to, you know, survive. Otherwise, we would have lost our lives with the last name of the journey. Because once you are inside the refrigerator, it's very difficult for the driver to try on the game. So, yeah, I ended I was kind of pleased, I was happy that I was finally here. Like, this my destination to find my brother. But things was not as easy, so easy as I thought. Um, so, at this time, you're, you're now 13? Yes, I was 13. Wow. Uh, so, so, when I arrived, we got arrested. The British police were a lot more polite and nicer compared to the French and the others. But we were, we were taken to a police custody for 24 hours. Then taken to the immigration removal centre in Dover, which was very scary because they, I thought they were going to send it back to France. Mm. Um, Do you have any documentation on you when you arrived? No, I had nothing. So uh, there was a long process of you know uh, questionings, and so it took me. And then a few weeks later, two days later, I, was, I uh, my nationality was disputed by the Home Office, and then my age was disputed by Kent Social Services. They said we couldn't have travelled half of the world. Yeah, too smart and intelligent for 13, can't help it. Um, and sitting five a table determined my age. He said my parents given me this date of birth. This is what I am, and they were giving me a completely different date of birth. Right. Uh, they were. Not, I think it was funny because I wish they were just like if they said you know, okay, I was born in October, they could have said okay, you October whatever date and a different year. there wasn't anyone doing that, they were giving me first of May, 1991. They could have given me a different date that would have been understandable, but you know. Uh, it was, a, it was a hard battle. And sadly there so many people who just did it particularly active. Now I understand because they don't want to pay for your schooling, they don't want to pay for your um, foster placement and care. It's all about money and, and resources and politics. Because once you are an unaccompanied an minor, you are underage, they had to um, look up to you as a child I and mean, grant you all the rights as, you know, as a child. And it's very easy for local authorities to just kind of wash their hands of responsibility. Now, right now, i you speak, Came from this morning, doesn't want to take any more unaccompanied finance because they will say We can't. They to to plus about 300 or so, they say We can't do any more. The home office has been very bad at dispersing, of sending people to different local authorities because the rule is, whatever local authority you arrived in as a child, you have to stay there. So most local authorities will make you over age, over 18, so that you're know, not their problem. Anyways, it was a long battle. It took me two years to challenge it. Um, the system was very dehumanizing. I was seen as a suspect, a criminal. Um, a liar, it was, you know, it took me a while, I was provided with food and, you know, basic necessity of housing and accommodation, money and stuff like social services, but mentally I was disturbed and I was made to feel unwelcome, made to feel, you know, we're here, uh, welcome refugee, welcome event in refugee week, and uh, I I didn't lose hope on the journey, but I lost hope when I was safe and secure. I hope that tells you everything that you need to know. So in Britain, the bureaucracy and the asylum force was such that people were me, but the system did not. And in the last 13 years of being here, I have not seen any improvement whatsoever when it comes to age assistance of, of company minors. When it comes to decision-making and asylum, it took me five years. Well, it took the home office five years to run the refugee status. They threatened to deport me twice. I'm still wondering where they were deporting with two because they didn't believe I was an Afghan. So, not only that was quite insulting, but at the same time, they wanted to deport me, but I don't know where exactly to. And so, yeah, I years to hide me my refugee states. Otherwise, I would have become a citizen a long time ago, and I would have been able to travel freely. I would have had the chance to, um, to visit my mom. I've not seen my family my mom for the last fourteen years. I haven't been, been able to vote. I haven't, like, I, the things that I would take for granted, I haven't had, had the chance to do, you know. I, I really want the government to consider giving refugees the right to vote, to have a voice, to have a say. because that's what's happened in Scotland and Wales, which is great, because that's what I want to, to, to integrate. Anyway, so in the UK, my experience was very negative, um, to, to, to keep it, like, mildly, to say, you know, so, but I just felt uh, welcomed and treated quite um, nicely by my, you know, my people, my teachers, when I was able to go to school, finally, I was fostered in Folsom, for two years, I was able to find my brother, which was really wonderful. Um, a lot of good things have had, had, had happened since then, and I was supported by local charities and individuals who befriended me, mentored me. All these small things that people have done for me, I'm grateful for. But the government, the system was making my life quite unbearable.
1: So, do you, do you get reunited with your brother? At what, at what point are you reunited
0: with him? So the a few months into it. So, I was living in Kent, still living with social services in Kent, in, a, in a an an miners unit, uh, a place called Apoldu, and uh, yeah, we, we just met by chance, like through faith and fate. The government wasn't very helpful. I told in his name, date and everything. Unless, of course, they have changed it as well. Social services changing date of as well. Um, they said, "Oh, there are 65 million people in the U. K. We can't find your brother. They could have easily found my brother, but the home office was uh, somehow unwilling. So yeah, we found we found each other through fate and fate." And uh, then I was not really allowed to live with him because of the democratic situation, the system that we had. It took me a while before I was able to go to Manchester to move and live with him. And then his story from more Public, he had to go back home um, to try to support and protect our mother. spent three years there, moved there not work out, had to flee again, came back, and took six years for the Home Office of Grand Refugee State just a, three, just a few months ago. He has a wife and son, whom, whom he had not seen for the last seven years. Uh, and the home office was like, oh, well, you spent years in Afghanistan, you could have spent your life there, why do you have to come back, you know? And it's uh, just like we have a very cruel and inhumane organization. Uh, yeah, and the home office is just like I just it doesn't it doesn't make sense to me how they could be so they just treat people as like statistics and numbers rather than individuals humans, people with you know hopes and aspirations and dreams and rights. So yeah, the UK um and we were discussing earlier like people that said you know. You come to Britain because you want to steal jobs and well, benefits. Actually, if you're an asylum city, you can't work. You had to live at five sixty pounds a day, five pounds sixty five cents a day. They increase their a three cents during the pandemic. Um still months something a week and you're not a lot of work. Sometimes you have to wait years and years for your decision when you were know, asylum claim. They're literally about hundred thousand people waiting for more than six months. No. So, year, so, so what,
1: what do you think it cost you a bit like? Because Initially, you say oh, so that, like, Well you? you sort of, you know, do you have the that? status now and uh, are able to to work and, you know, to rent property and things like that which most people aren't allowed to as long as they don't have that say. Sure, sure. Well, what, 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 what do you think got you behind? Because you're, you're a child from the time that you're 13 until you're 18. And the way that the asylum system works is that the burden of proving that Britain should protect you is entirely on you. Yes. And, and you and have to say
0: that. And so once you're a, know, but that's the other question. You can't do anything. The home office is all powerful. Like if they say you're lying, you're lying. Mm. What else could you do? So what was it them? what
1: was it that that made them achieve you status in the
0: end? That's a good question. So in twenty thirteen when I, I was accepted into Manchester University to do my politics degree, I worked extremely hard English isn't my first and second language. Um I got a place, but I couldn't go there because they wanted 14,000 pounds. I said, well, if I had 15 grand, I wouldn't go to you uh, That's another story. Absolutely... And then um, the home office was not granting me my status. I just had, like, temporary leave to remain for a few years. And uh, once my age was resolved, and still they wouldn't grant me, like, proper refugee status. Finally, they did somehow. Realized that they made a mistake, uh, made a lot of errors and, and things. And I was very active and engaged in the community as well. So people wrote me of of support like all sorts of people, politicians, EPs, um, Children's Society, British Youth Council. I was involved in a lot of like, youth participation work and youth activism. That helped. Um, and then I was able to go to university, which was great because of the, the decision. And the thing that changed for me was giving my refugee status and also you know, my foster family was very supportive. Um, education was important. Going to university made me feel like you know I, I, I had a chance that I had an opportunity and I could actually give this a try and then you know, I had a chance to do my master's here at Coventry, which I never imagined Even in my in my family, perhaps in my tribe. We we are very nobody people. My, only my father was a doctor, I think he just had some sort of diploma in Peshawar and i uh, the only one with a degree and a master, so it's kind of I know it's uh, I'm proud and also I had a chance to try to like toach, I've done some cool stuff, you to kind of taught one of the eight thousand people to do so. And uh, so things changed there were a lot of factors. Not just one thing. So getting in the right state, getting the the most important thing is getting the immigration status, mm-hmm. and then being able to you know get an education. And I was able to get married a few years ago, um, and a uh, lot of lot of good stuff had happened. But my mom has saved us, but she also lost us. It was so much has happened back home where uh, my brothers got married, I was not there. My sister got married, I was not there. I got married, my family was not here. Um, and uh, my one my little sister passed away. My grandma passed away. Who was very beloved to me. And, you know, this occasion, this thing that happens once in a lifetime, and I wanted to be part of it. So being a refugee, is a huge sacrifice. And if I have a choice, I want to be anywhere, I want with my loved ones, That's what I want to get. You don't become a refugee out of choice. It's not something that you want to do. And so, yes, I hope, I, you know, I know people in Britain are very generous, very kind, I travel across the UK. It's the government doesn't represent us, in fact. Yeah, it doesn't represent us, but then people still vote for them. That's a bit problematic, but, anyways, like, the uh, majority of the British people want to support and help refugees, and they want to show solidarity. There have been so many services done. Like 65 70 percent people saying, oh, no, we should welcome refugees." But the government uses fear and hatred, uh, and you know, blame COVID and asylum seekers and all sorts of things, uh, and just sees calling us illegal, which is quite a bit humanizing. Uh, these are fellow human beings in need of help and support, which we should be providing. I feel like, especially with young refugees, it's an investment. Britain has invested in me and I'm trying to pay back I and mean, I've been doing everything trying to do everything right, I'm trying to give back to society, be a useful and active citizen and most of the Jews that I know are business people, are accountants, are engineers are working hard and paying their taxes and contributing to, to society so we're not, we're not troubled like troublemakers. we're not people to fear, fear of people shouldn't be fearful of us, like, you know, we, we're, not, we're not here to cause problems
1: mm. Yeah that's, that's very interesting. So let's talk about current government policy. So Priti Patana has introduced what she's calling a, a new immigration plan. I just want to get your, your opinions about what you make of these plans. So what she plans to do is that you will now Get status dependent on your mode of arrival. What do you make of that? Because what that does is, it means that person will only accept people as refugees now if they come from from a refugee camp, which is very And they get read. That's the only way that you'll be able to get get status. If if you come in the way that we see on our televisions uh, through the channel, you won't now be able to get refugee status. What, what do you make of
0: that plan? Exactly, so it's very concerning. It's not going to solve the problem. It, just will, it will mean more delays, more uncertainty, more limbo for refugees. So the way you come here should not um, should not define your, your status. So basically, the UN Convention, the UN humanitarian law, international rule is very clear that the way you arrive does not determine your status. And the reason people arrive right from the endangered food is because there is no safer route to come, so this resettlement program we had, we took about 10,000 Syrian refugees in the last five years. There was a lot of public pressure on the government to do so. That's like 5,000 a year, a very small number. And resettlement is a very small, um, small numbers of people uh, across the world. Britain is behind a lot of countries, like Canada, and Canada, Germany, other European countries in terms of resettlement. They wouldn't say how many people they will take and from where. For so example, you know, uh, Afghans can't claim or go to a refugee camp. Like Afghans can't. Uh, Ask for asylum in Pakistan or Iran. These, these things are not available. So, the only way people come here is through these so called illegal, irregular, and um, ins- you know, un- 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 regular routes, safer routes, because that's the only option they have. And so, I feel like it's, it's, uh, it's immoral, it's wrong, and um, the government wants to send people to uh, like third countries. This idea that asylum seekers are a problem, a burden, we'll somehow solve it and send it somewhere else. Making someone else's problem—it's very, very dehumanizing because, like, these are people. Like, same demographic trying to do is trying to send refugees and asylum seekers to Rwanda and a country who will have them, you know. So Britain is going to externalize their asylum policies, and I think it sends the wrong message. Britain is supposed to be championing the international rule, the system. The UN Convention came about because Britain was behind it. You know, Britain was one of the countries behind it. So the UNCR been very clear: this is this is the wrong move. It's illegal. Uh, and shouldn't do it, but uh, I guess all it means is that we have no agreement with the European countries, so where are going to send people to. And that district will be limbo and They have to be fearful of being detained and deported. Uh, more work for the home office instead of making effective decisions, good decisions. So at the moment, about 50 60% of people get strategic status according to the home Office on rules. They quite, they're quite cruel and, and difficult, and some people then go get this uh, status through code the government wants to make it difficult to, they want to limit access to justice because they they know that people will get uh, accepted as refugees if they go to court and so they want judges to have less say and uh, things like that so I feel like it's the illusion of human rights and I think refugees are ordinary people they need to be you know accepted and helped and supported uh so the, the direction we're moving is not only concerning but it's uh it's very problematic. money because Britain do it other countries we do the same and so this you know what is the point of the UN refugee convention? Even in the UK said if somebody is a genuine refugee, we will still not have a status. They will not have the right to family education. They will have to renew their status every two and a half years. will have to pay huge fees like this. two and have to three pounds two, three, two, three, three, every two and a half years that you have to renew it. You have no access to public funds, public recourse to public funds. And uh, it just means more people in uh, institutions and perhaps homelessness and, uh, and poverty. Like, I don't know where we heading with this. Because it's, it's, it will not solve the problem. What would what, what, what would solve the problem? We need legal and safer routes and also in Britain we're saying look we will resettle people, uh like, let's say twenty thousand people or fifty thousand people a year from world of countries, then that would help. I, I think this is this is the suggestion. But then they're the not showing anything about. out. They're not saying and they say we will do safe and legal routes, we will do but they're not saying from where and how. So the twenty thousand we we'll took was very small and I think you should not be turning people away. If they you know they come to your house for safety in Saturn, that's just that's just a moral, a human thing to do. Like if somebody comes to your house and look, I'm in danger, you're like no, you know maybe allowing it to happen. I just have to send you somewhere else. Like that doesn't, that's not how it should be. And I feel like it's not about money, it's not about resources. It's about the government is speaking the language of Najib the language of the right wing. that it's the they want to please certain segments of society who will No matter what you do, they will still have problems with the foreigners and immigrants and refugees. And as I said, we are 28 in the world, actually 23rd in the world, taking in refugees. And less than 1% of our population are refugees. There are 80 million displaced people in the world. It's keep increasing because of conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, South Sudan, the situation in Burmese, uh, the Rohingyas in Burma. There are about 30 million refugees out of the 80 million. The 50 million people are internally displaced. So there are about 5 million Afghans inside Afghanistan. People don't just, their first option is not to go out. They usually move to different regions in their own country. There are 8 million uh, Syrian displaced inside Syria, about 4 or 5 million refugees in neighboring countries. So people move to neighboring countries, people move to the nearest point. So only a very small number of to Europe, and even a smaller number of to the UK. So I, I feel like we need to look into ourselves and be compassionate, show our humanity, and show our humanitarian values. The direction that we are taking is going to encourage a lot more countries in Europe and the Western world. Who say you know if, if we are not going to take refugees? what should we? And so then, then there's no point. The U, the UN Refugee Convention is there for a reason, and that means you know, the never again. Should be never again. And I feel when I think about the, the history, when I think about like, the Holocaust and how I used to be very ignorant of it, but I've learned and how heartbreaking it is that six million innocent people are murdered. And what were the world doing? And now I think about future generation will ask, what were we doing when this was happening? You know, and people are coming here. And say, seeking protection and safety and sanctuary we were turning them away and treating them you know as criminals and criminalizing them for making these journeys. Like the government wants to literally make it the fault of asylum seekers and refugees for coming and seeking protection. If the government allowed them to go to British embassies and to go and seek asylum for uh, you know, from a third country that so would be fine. That is not available. Like the resettlement is very limited. They wouldn't say from which countries, from where and sometimes you have to wait for years and years for so the Syria to come here. They work years and years in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Turkey, there, they usually select into the UNCR. It's, it's not something that you can actually go and put an application for. So that system doesn't work. And I just feel like you so know the numbers are very small, it's very relative. We can manage it. And it's global. Um, we have made it an initial article, it's not an issue.
1: So if this policy does um, cross the line,
0: what do you think it would do for the smugglers? It's a great business for you. So the smugglers will kill people. Uh, we will make sure you get to the UK. We will make sure you don't get arrested, and we will, we will find a way that when you get arrested, you s- just say you don't know. You somehow, somehow go to the UK by other means. You don't say you come from France. You don't say you come from safer countries. You know. So the hummers can't really prove how you got here. If the smugglers promise you that they will get you here through even more dangerous means, and. Uh, and you will not be discovered or you will not be found by the police at your arrival. They can't determine where you have come from. Of course, it's based on life, based on like, assumptions, but the smugglers, will, even now that people are making these journeys across the channel, the smuggler tells a lot of lies and deceive people because they're desperate, they will do anything. And so I think their business will thrive. Uh, because the government always they want to love the smugglers, and travel, but actually the way they've been doing things is kind of an encouragement to smugglers. Smugglers right now are telling people to look the UK is going to make it a lot more harder. Right? and you just test people you you before this happens and uh, putting people in more and more danger so it's not going to do any, any good like this idea it's going to be fair and firm, it's anything but um, so yeah, there's about eight things and admissibility criteria forcefully removing people you know, not running for the status even though they they, they, they need international protection All this, it sends the wrong message, the wrong signal especially to countries which doesn't want refugees. And if Britain is doing it, how you could lecture others not to, like, even mm-hmm. Hungary, for example, or like, Greece and other European countries for struggling with the refugees, saying, like, well, if Britain could do it, we'd externalize our refugee situation as well. Yeah, and just before we,
1: we open up to the audience so they can ask you some questions, um, I finally want to ask you about uh, your time in prison. Um, what have you found that like? And what have you found the British people to be like? Is it what you expected? And what would you tell people who wanted to come and seek sanctuary here?
0: I think um, you know, people should have a choice where they want to go and people have their own reasons for doing so. Like you know, in France I we were discussing whether they get a lot more money in Germany, Samsung get a lot more help and support, but People choose to come here because of you know, family, because of culture, because of language, because of other links that they may have. I would not encourage people to come here because our asylum system is But If people come here, I understand. You know they, they make this journey, I get it. Um, so I'm not discouraging, I'm not encouraging, I'm not in the business of you know doing that. But uh, I just want the system to be fair. I want the system to be human. In my experience of Britain, it been quite positive, uh, not positive when it comes to people. I, I've traveled to about 250,000 cities in the UK, especially since the publication of the book. Um, I have met people with a lot of kindness and generosity towards me. Um, I had some ex- experience some racism and discrimination early on in Kent when I was when first. I, I mean, people still kind of um, hate me, and bully me on Twitter, but that's a that's a different story. But my, my majority of my experience interaction with human beings has been uh, has been very encouraging, and I think. People everywhere um, have it within, we all have it within ourselves to show compassion and humanity. We all have the capabilities and abilities to be kind. It doesn't cost us anything. And I see these people who are anti and anti-refugees, they have perhaps they have never better a refugee. Which is what normal people, we are, you know, we want the best for our families, we want to be safe, we want to be, you know, secure and, and, and protected and so on. And I think we shouldn't take to granted things that we have. So my experience uh, with the British people has, the only time I've been disappointed in Brexit, the way people voted, uh, but other than that, I, I have I have a lot of uh, respect and admiration. Uh, I, I feel like the British people have university, you know, going through universities and getting education and the things that I've done, um, and, you know, being in the foster placement. So yeah, I'm grateful for that, but at the same time, um, some people think that I shouldn't be grateful, but I, I do feel a sense of gratitude, uh, not for the government so much, but for people. And so I, I, hope we can give the same opportunities to people um, who are right now who are in my situation. I want them to succeed. I want them to achieve. Um, so yeah, and, and the people could actually make a difference by I don't know writing petitions, going to to protests, going out to supporting local refugee charities, um, making your voices heard, uh, and just uh, contributing positively to the debate discussions. And so I, I, hope that I hope that answers. Yeah, no,
1: that's amazing. Um... It's been a really fascinating conversation with you, Gulwale. So we'll open up to our, our audience here. If anybody has got any questions for Gulwale, this is your opportunity to ask. What
0: started the war? Was a civil war in So we, the main war started was once we had a communist regime, and then uh, there was a few coups d'etat against the king. So the, the time when we had the like for 40 years, that was a very stable time uh, in history. But Afghanistan has always seen wars from the British in the eighteen hundred and the 1900s. We had three Anglo-Afghan wars and we won, we won all of them. And then it's faded because I say we, I use we in both sense like here and there. But uh, uh, the Russian war has made, made all the kind of conflicts uh, thereafter. So when they came to help the, the Marxist, the, the communist regime, and then they then occupied with, uh, Afghanistan, and waited for about eight years. There were a million Afghans dead, and uh, there were uh, 30,000 Russian soldiers were killed as well in that eight years of uh, occupation, and thereafter we have not seen peace, and there was the, the warlords fighting among themselves, and then there was the Taliban, and the, the this new government. We, like, literally, There was a report I was very proud of the same with children. Every child born in Afghanistan has seen nothing but war that traumatized a whole generation of people. And this is just in the last twenty years, but actually you know, my parents or my grandparents time, they had wars. So it's just that, that forty plus years has made people like I I see news where suicide bombing happens, thirty four people die, the next day it's business as usual because people got so used to it. It's become normalised like, that people are dying, it's part of, part of life when it shouldn't be. So violence and, and suffering. It's part of life. Like COVID now in you know, Afghanistan hit, hit hard because of India and Pakistan. We have not closed the borders with these countries and uh, people like COVID is people's last concern And they come forget COVID, we are dying anyway. You know, people are dying of starvation. We have about eighty percent of the population are indeed in need of humanitarian assistance because of drought, because of conflict, because of displacements, because of all sorts of you know um, problems that we face. And the international community is being uh, not Kind of focusing on Afghanistan, and I feel like we will have a unless things are sorted out, we will have a huge influx of uh, refugees, which sadly, Britain doesn't want. But I don't want people to be refugees. You know, we need to find a solution to peace, and uh, political solution to conflict. So yeah, the war has uh, seems to be not having ending. people are people are uh, hungry for power. Like, I don't know why why a human would kill a human. I can't even kill a like you know a cockroach or something like. It just I just doesn't I just don't get it how yeah, people have become really, not all people, but like certain segments of Afghan society has got used to conflict and war and just like you know, and there's of course international players involved, there's regional countries involved, there's proxy war happening, it's about money, it's about drugs, it's about opium, and all sorts of things, just so many things are intertwined, um, and I just, I, I, I sometimes, I'm very hopeful but sometimes I lose hope when I look at these things, the every the day I wake up. I try not to check social media because every day there's bombing. Every day these people losing their lives for no reason. You know, just the start the day, we had uh, there was a bombing, uh, there was an attack against uh, uh, the people who clean uh, clearing mines. What well, like what what has these people done? They were clearing mines so people don't die, children can walk safely to schools. and They were killed, and like, so much senseless. Sinless killing in this endless bloodshed, and just bloody stuff like my hair is up. I'm trying to think about it, I just like in
2: too much violence. So, you at some point you like the Holocaust with what is happening now, and we have seen it with the wind rush uh, scandal as well. People were talking about it for a long time, but that's what is happening. So, we are seeing that now. So there is the thing that
0: maybe the message is not getting across. What do you think should be done so that maybe we can all see what, what we go on? That's a very good point. Like I think people are listening. I think sometimes people people become um, like people just become used to it again, like oh this is happening, refugees are coming, you know, they see it in the news and they, they kind of things are sensationalized and it's like, oh this is like this is what it is. But I feel you know, I think about the situation in China, for example, the Vietnamese Muslims, of course, the winter generation was struggling, the Muslims hadn't learned anything from it, and they continue to want to be poor people now with the EU citizens situation, like, you know, now, like, welcome to our world, they used to have, have quite good. And um, it just, it just, like, there are over a million people in concentration camp. They call it the education camp. People have been persecuted for their, for their beliefs, their religions, their faith. People have been ethnically cleansed in Burma just for being, you know, being Rohingyas, being Muslim. And the world seems to not do much about it. And we have lost, I feel like we have lost sense of carelessness um, and concern for our fellow human beings. Like, for example, you know, uh, what's happening to the Europeans now, in the new system. Of course I'm concerned, we should all be. But at the time when this was happening to us, most of the Europeans weren't concerned because it wasn't happening to them. You know? So I wish we could care for and be concerned for our fellow human beings when they suffer, when they go through pain, and to stand in solidarity. The least that we could do is like the thing that upsets me is this lack of solidarity with Afghanistan and Afghans. Like, for example, the Syrians, it's great that we have sympathy and solidarity with the Syrians, but that should not be diminished, that should not reduce. Uh, so, for example, Germany took a million refugees. At the time they were taking Syria, they were deporting Afghans. Like, how does that make sense? If you're a refugee, you're a refugee no matter where you're from your nationality and citizenship should not matter. If you're persecuted, you're fleeing violence and injustices and oppression. You deserve to be treated, you know, uh, with dignity and be granted asylum. So, yes, there is this huge inequality in the way things are done. In the UK, with this new system, we're going to have a two-tier system where if you come through resettlement, you will get all the help and support, you will get different employment, which is great. But then if you come up and, and you're all, and you will be penalized, you'll be a second, third-class refugee, and just this two-tier system, it's just like, it's an apartheid system in a way. Like, you just, I don't know if that's the right word for it, but it's it's very problematic. You know, you, if you're a refugee, you're a refugee. Like, I, if I could come through safer routes, I would have come, but I didn't have a choice. I had to take lorries and trucks and put my life in danger, and you keep on saying in world because you didn't come through our official routes you know, we're not, gonna cons- we're not even going to consider a silent plan So, yeah. And I, I just hope we could all awaken our consciousness and be caring and considerate and be concerned with what's happening in the world. I mean, you can't solve the world's problem. Yeah. But at least, you know, not to be careless, not to just say, oh, there's far too much, it's happening in the world, and I can't deal with it, it's too much. But I, I feel like we need to be making that doubt that you can't. Right now, if the government is reducing the, the foreign aid budget, literally there will be people across the world who will not have clean water as a result of that. Yes, we have the pandemic. Yes, there's economic constraints. Yes, there's you know, challenges. But we should not be cutting aid to the poorest people in the world. We have a responsibility, a moral and legal obligation to these people. So, yeah, this small thing we should care about, like, you know. We shouldn't write it and say, no, the legal days, I think there's a vote in parliament. That it you know, should not be going down from 0.7%. That that is low, lower that should be. We should be giving this money to countries and people who who need it the most. I also believe that
2: um, as citizens of the UK, we have a role to hold our media to account,able because most of our news comes from them, and most of the mis- education and communication comes from them. So I did a journalism degree, and I did the degree because I wanted to be able to take the skills that the media use and then serve a community, which is my community and better representation and learning from that and seeing a lot of the way news is that things like the Daily Mail and things like that. So all these people that you know have read the Daily Mail, is how they see refugees because not only do the government um, do this thing, but the media also install the fears of what the government think about people through their channels. So as citizens, it's also our job, like you said, to also show compassion, but to also learn. So if we know we've got refugee friends and families, and members that we know that are close to us that are being affected by these things in the community, it's also our job as well to hold our local leaders accountable. Mm-hmm. Whether it's the commentary line, if we read an article and we know the commentary life is telling lies, it's our job to call them up on that. I would drop the call of national papers because at the end of the day, these are the people that are informing people. People never know what the government is doing, what the government planning, what the government saying if the media don't show it. And we have to actually break the ideology. But we have to remember, media owners are humans, and how they see society is how they basically, that capital of government looks at you know, they basically install it into humans. So, and that's they fear that it is still, and if we're trying to also be talking about changing systems, that is a big system in this world that needs to be held that can't be. Because we are the viewers, we what the people that send
0: the to, to If we don't agree with so we have to call that out. Completely. Yeah, that's a very good point. The media needs to be responsible. They need to use the right, you know, the right language. They need to be. you should send complaints if they say the wrong things or they say things which create hatred and fear amongst people. Like you know, you see the media aspect, especially with Brexit, with the issues around immigration. So they say things which are untrue. They say stuff which they influence a lot of people. Like people who read the Sun, for example. There's a lot of rubbish in there. A lot of nonsense, and uh, so yeah, the media needs to be responsible. And as citizens, we, we have a, we have a responsibility to when we see the wrong information or untrue information, is to challenge it. I mean, it's not easy, but uh, I mean, through, through social media, we can do that. Like sending tweets and putting things on social media, hopefully getting their attention, sending them emails, and uh, getting together, campaigning. It, it does you know does does bring about change. Yeah, um, you recount you recount the Halloween extra the extraordinary story. Um, and I would like to apologise, not how to get on what you went through. if you had the ear of a you know, policymaker, yeah, with influence you have you, you published allowance, if you could reach somebody who would quotes what would you say? Consider what you and what you, where you see the uh, geopolitics where you're going now, what would Thank you. So whenever I see politicians and, and policy makers, I said, to them, look, I wish they could put themselves in our shoes, but I want them to, be, to create policies which are fair and compassionate and humane. Like, how would you have policies which which treat people as criminals, treat individuals, especially people who have seen so much, uh, you know, bad things happen to them, and has to go through these experiences, and then you treat them uh, even worse. Like, as I said, I didn't lose hope on the journey, I lost hope when I was here. I was safe and secure, but I lost hope because of the system. So whenever I see policy makers and, and, and decision makers, I said you know, just create policy which I make. And people people interest at heart. Like when we talk about Salam, silent uh, and we're talking about people. These are individuals, these are people with stories, with hopes, with dreams, with aspirations, and we're shattering their lives. and mean when people are dying in the Mediterranean, the EU have a system where they have surveillance surveillance they have a drones in the sky to see you know to see what's happening but they don't intervene to save lives and actually people who are been going rescuing people are being persecuted and criminalized so for example we saw in London uh, Stansted 11 the people went in to stop deportation flight and they were persecuted under terrorism charges We saw this uh, other examples in Italy where uh, captains of ships and captains of like uh, uh, volunteers and uh, humanitarian people, were persecuted for saving people's lives, and in the UK, the government wants to persecute the silent by steering a boat. So, if in the English Channel, you, you are you, are, you are drifting, you are drowning, or whatever, and you're trying to steer the boat to trying to rescue yourself and your fellow refugees, you will go to jail. So, yeah, this, this doesn't make sense. So, yeah, whenever uh, we get the chance to speak to policy makers, just like you know, we want them to learn and to to create policies and, and uh, create an environment which is not hostile. This hostile environment you have in India has not worked. It's not working. It's, it's making life difficult for people unnecessarily. And we could certainly have a better system because, for example, the government said, we put people in the barricades and came because we wanted to make sure that people wanted not pick at the government saying, oh, you're putting people in good accommodation. They wanted, you know, they wanted people to just, like, uh, be happy with the, the terrible conditions. And again, it's coming back to people, citizens. There are people who actually believe we should be welcoming refugees and we should be you know, deporting them. Some people say we should be selling the Navy and stopping them and selling warships and stuff. So that's a small minority of people. I like think the majority needs to rise up and speak up because a lot of us are supportive of justice and social justice and human rights, but I'm not saying anything. I'm not making our voices heard. So definitely, you know, by writing to our MPs, sending petition, Going on demonstrations, supporting local charities, international charities, and doing all these things that we could as individuals, as community, collectively, it, it has an impact. It won't make a difference. But uh, yeah, I think you know policymakers are human beings. We just need to touch their hearts, and we need to uh, you know have that human interaction with them. Because a lot of people who make decisions about refugees have not met a refugee. Like these politicians in that we have, they think about votes. They think about you know how to be power, how to be. Extremely populist, and how to get, you know, like, it became, I wish they spent the same amount of energy and the opposite direction. Because at the moment, like, the focus is how to be most right wing, how to be, you know, how to, how would you be more extreme in your views against refugees and migrants? That's how you, you win votes, that's concerning. But there are people in the UK who support this kind of, you know, ideologies, this kind of perspectives. And again, through education and through raising awareness. I hope we can change that. Sorry, that
2: was a long answer. <laughs> it's so good. So, sorry, I haven't experienced a traumatic experience you had. As an immigrant in this country, many times I, I felt that I've been treated as a second or third class citizen. I don't have the same rights as everybody else. And uh, the way that I am treated in front of law, so I'm always like perceived as being guilty. And that's proven innocent, whereas for British citizens, it's completely the opposite way around. So the logic is probably the government wants to have these punitive measures to put people off from doing this. So I was just wondering since 2010, the consecutive uh, conservative government tightening the rule, has that been a, had any effect on putting actually people off to come into this country? That's, that's <laughs> a very good point. No,
0: so. No. No. Unfortunately, yeah, asylum seekers and refugees and migrants are seen as uh, guilty they have to prove themselves innocent. How do you do that if, not, you know, if you're not kind of guilty? They're presuming guilty. Um, with all this restrictive policies, this hostile environment has not uh, reduced, uh, it has not had an impact. It's just people have been, less and less people are coming here because of, you know, the external European borders, because of other factors and reasons. Um, and, uh, people come for all sorts of reasons. So it has not worked. People still come, but then they just have it more difficult here. I, I have friends who are documented, people who are failed asylum seekers, who are living in destitution, who are being exploited by, like, you know, uh, people in the economy, business people, they just make them work for two, three months an hour to survive. And it's because of the government, because of its policies. So by having the more restrictive policies, you have, you put people's lives at risk, you put people's health at risk. So I have lots of friends who are not registered with the GP, who are not going to doctor, because they're scared of being you know being detained and being the information being passed on to um, immigration authorities. And it's just like the whole state, of the UK has become this like everybody's a border force officer, like the government expect teachers, and nurses and doctors everywhere to report. And, and migrants and refugees like we we Yeah, we are heading in a, in a I'm trying to be optimistic and positive, but we are heading in a really Authoritarian, authoritarian directions where we uh, we want to spy on people uh, and you know see you know see their status, especially now we've seen some letters being sent to parents since the EU, situation said saying oh, we need to see people's passports and we need to put people's nationality and like on papers in school. That shouldn't be really happening. Okay? If you're a school, you're a child, you're a school. Your nationality, your passport should not matter. But the government is bringing these rules. Just the, the great combination of racism, on world, nationality and citizenships. yeah.
1: Do we have any other questions before we, we wrap up? Okay. No Gawwali, it's been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, thank you so much for coming to Coventry as people celebrate Coventry Welcomes and celebrates
0: uh, refugee week. Thank you, Michael. It's great to be having been with you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us and um, participating and contributing to the discussion.
1: So, thank you so much for coming. Thank
0: you.